The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, good evening. I hope you can all hear me. It's so good to be here tonight and to have the privilege of uh, speaking with you this evening on this uh, important occasion. Uh, Westminster Chapel is one of the churches that was mentioned uh, that hosts a, a pregnancy care center, and we're uh, honored and blessed and proud of that fact that we're part of this wonderful ministry. My only disappointment is that there aren't 300 churches in Toronto rather than 13 actually participating in this. And we're praying that that will increase uh, as time goes on, as people recognize increasingly the significance of this work. Now, we've heard lots of really wonderful stories tonight about the work of the Pregnancy Care Center, and we've seen faces and babies, some of whom wouldn't have been here were it not for the Pregnancy Care Center. And that really, let's not forget, is why we're here this evening is that we are helping families, and we're also rescuing lives that might otherwise have not seen uh, the light of day. So the celebration of 30 years is, at the same time, uh, tinged with grief at what is taking place in Canada, a country which has no law whatsoever against abortion, where 10,000 Babies are killed every year just in this city. In the midst of the stories, then, it's important that we ask ourselves and reflect on why so many people find themselves in this situation. What is it about our culture, about our time, that has brought us to this? The prophet Jeremiah, as he speaks the word of God... God, through Jeremiah, says, They have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They have set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnon to offer up their sons and daughters to Moloch. Though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Now, we live in a time when the morality or the ethical standards of the Christian faith are increasingly rejected, and objections to the things that are going on in our culture, even objections to pregnancy care center, tend to be grounded in the idea that we are moralizing people. We're just moralizing. That we represent an outdated set of values. We represent some sort of special socio-political interest group that is just background noise now in our culture. As such, the Christian view of these things is often seen falsely as judgmentalism, as self-righteous that even helping and reaching out to such women is seen by some as an expression of hatred, not love. 
In such a context, we as Christians have to relearn to understand and communicate our faith and make our case, as many of the early Christians did in the pagan world in the early centuries of the church. I'm going to give you a couple of big words this evening. They made their case cosmologically and not pragmatically. And I've called what I want to say this evening the cosmology of compassion. Now, don't be scared. Cosmology just means structure, order, order. The way in which we look at and understand and order the world. It's about the big picture of life and the implications that flow from it. And Christians believe certain things about the world, and there are implications that should flow from that. One of them is what PCC represents. Now, typically, those of us us who are concerned with the preservation of innocent life in the womb... We reflect the compassion of our maker, certainly, but we often start by coming at the issues in the way most do, which is with pragmatic considerations. And those, of course, are important. We talk about the health consequences for a a woman who has an abortion, both emotionally and psychologically and physically. We even talk now scientifically about how the the unborn child is a human life from conception, and that... Killing the child is really just a form of murder. The difficulty now is that we live in a context where many of the pro-abortion intellectuals are unconcerned by the charge of murder. Camille Baglia has written, she's a social commentator and a pro-abortion writer, she says, I have always frankly admitted that abortion is murder, the extermination of the powerless by the powerful, which results in the annihilation of concrete individuals, not just clumps of insensate tissue, end quote. Now, for such people, there is a new order. There is a new cosmology. And it is the autonomy or the absoluteness of the human will and our desires that move us beyond good and evil. That we're not interested in what, in our culture today, what God thinks or has to say, but our will, the will of a man or the will of a woman, is beyond good and evil. And we are autonomous, which means we are a law to ourselves. And that grows out of a view of life that is a religious view of life. Don't think that we don't live in a religious culture. We live in a very religious culture. Every person is inescapably religious. And it's because of this that it's insufficient for us to argue the case purely pragmatically, because what people will say then is that you're just a moralist. This is just moralism. We need a deeper recognition of God's ordering of all things in creation that reflects his character and nature, and then we need the fortitude to confront the culture with the alternatives of adopting either a cosmology of killing or a cosmology of Compassion, And the latter one promotes life actively, which is what PCC is about. In other words, we are not just engaged in a war of words. This isn't just a sociological issue. Rather, we are in a dispute today in our culture about the nature of reality itself. 
Now recently, I, as, let me just talk for a moment about the cosmology of killing. I was reading a number of articles published in a massive book called, the Religion, and Ecolo- called Religion and Ecology, published by Oxford University Press, and I was reminded of two things when I was reading this. First of all, there are only two religions in which everybody participates, one way or another. There's the worship and service of the Creator, or there's the worship and service of the creation. That's the first thing. And second of all, that as a consequence, we are in a spiritual conflict as well. That manifests itself, the spiritual conflict we're in, manifests itself in very specific ideas and practices in every social order. So that when we look at Canada today, we are looking at norms and practices that are not neutral, they're not coincidental, they're not peripheral. They're an aspect of our fundamental beliefs about the world, their religious commitments. Now I want to say something about how we have been, the way, the direction we've looked in recent years in the West on this issue. Our religious sensibilities have turned eastward for our self-understanding. Because today, the all-pervasive message conveyed in our culture is that Mother Nature is all there is and all we have. There is no infinite, personal, transcendent God who is separate from the universe, and that means that human beings like you and me are insubstantial creatures, and what we are is really socially constructed. It's not God-given, it's not defined by God, it's a social construction. That's why we can redefine marriage and redefine sexuality and redefine life because it's just a socially constructed idea. We, share, we occupy a shared biosphere characterized, we're told, by the finely balanced interdependency of, uh, of reality rooted in the fundamental oneness of all things. Something that perhaps you've been told if you go to yoga, which I'm not recommending. In all classical Eastern thought, which we call paganism or used to, the premise, the first premise of cosmology, that's the order of things, is the fundamental unity of everything that exists. And what we're being told today is that human beings constitute a threat to that finely balanced order when they reproduce. And that actually you're doing the planet a service if you're having an abortion. You're reducing the carbon footprint of the planet. Now, the unity of all things that lies behind everything, it goes by many names. For some of the Chinese religions, everything is constituted of chi. In Hinduism, everything participates in Brahman. In Buddhism, anatta is no soul or no self. That really means that nothingness or non-being is ultimate reality. And nirvana, you reach nirvana when you realize there is no self, there is no you. And so we have to live, we're told, without a transcendent God, we have to live with all things as our kith and kin. That includes the worms in your garden and the rabbits uh, down at the zoo, uh, the petting zoo, and human beings all over the planet. We have to maintain the right order and balance, the right karma. In all forms, then, of paganism, abortion is 
pragmatics. It's to be tolerated and at times even promoted on the basis of the needs of nature or perhaps the needs of the state. And the state is expressing in itself the will of nature. So in Buddhism, abortion is not a termination. There is no self. It's a waiting room where whatever is rests in nebulous realms before another rebirth. Now, what we're told today is that in the Western world is that human numbers are a threat to this balance. In fact, in some of the latest texts that I've been reading, we're told the earth could only sustain 4 to 16 billion, depending on our consumption patterns, which is a complete myth, but I haven't got time to talk about that. And obviously, that means that for some of these people writing on these issues, we're already overpopulated. The earth is already overpopulated. These intellectuals, though, rarely see their own imminent departures as part of the solution. Harold Dorn has put it this way, there are two biological checks upon a rapid increase in numbers, a high mortality and a low fertility. Unlike other biological organisms, humans can choose which of these checks shall be applied, but one of them must be. End quote. What does that mean? Well, it simply means, in short, the human population is only a minor part of the cosmic chain of being, and it has to be culled for the sake of nature. That is, for all that is. Now, I grant that the women who come into these pregnancy care centers usually have not been thinking that way. Okay, they're thinking, how am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to cope with this? How, am I, how is my family going to react? And so on. But they inhabit a culture which promotes this and says this is the best choice. This is the right choice. They live in a culture that's legalized and promoted an advanced abortion with an intractable determination. And as a result, what we're told is just a human right. It's an autonomous choice, and it's a responsible one at that in the best interests of the planet. And it preserves the freedom of the new self-realizing God, that is, man himself. Now, to understand this adequately, and I know I'm making you think after your dinner, but you ought to be made to do something for your dinner. To understand things adequately today, this view has given rise to what we can only describe as a silent pogrom of state-sponsored abortion. And we have to revive some of our own cultural memory to understand this. The cosmology of killing dominated the West before Christianity came here. What happened was that our faith and let me just give you another slightly bigger word, de-divinize the world. What does that mean? It means that with the Christian faith, the world itself, nature is not divine, it isn't God, and you're not a part of God. You can't become a God. Christianity said there is only one triune God alone on the throne of Godhood, and he's separate from the universe. He's utterly distinct. 
You see, in the ancient world where our faith was first preached in an abortionistic culture that practiced abortion and infanticide on a massive scale, they really believed that the city-state or the empire represented a continuous unity of gods and men, of the divine and the human, of the unity of all being that I talked about. Every part of society was part of this all-absorbing one. Whereas our faith says, no, there is a distinction between the human and the divine. Even in Jesus himself, who is fully God and fully man, those two natures are in unconfused union. To de-divinize the world in this way was seen by the pagans as a dangerous threat to order. That is their cosmology. So Celsus said this was the language of sedition to say that there was a God distinct from an other who defines life and truth and law rather than man. The thing to understand here is simply that the Greeks and the Romans, with all their idolatry, with all that we see in all of the scriptures actually, they were indirectly worshipping themselves in their own desires when they worshipped their false gods. That's what they were worshipping. The gods were an expression of nature, so were they, and when they worshipped these gods, they worshipped themselves. They divinized their rulers, they divinized the state, they divinized the human order. It was God on earth. And this led to a totalizing, that is a a state that controlled everything and defined life. Said when it could begin and end. But the Christian faith dispensed with all of that. We face today then something that is not new. But its scope is far greater than even the ancient world knew. The early church confronted the reality of abortion. The Greek philosophers, you see, they were all advocates of abortion and infanticide. Plato's Republic makes this very plain. He argues that the state, as the ultimate order and the functional God, can order abortion and infanticide and incest and so on as it sees fit. Justice and truth are what the state says they are, because it's divine. Aristotle's position was similar. He said that the state could require abortions after a certain limit. Not unlike China today. Infants did had not actually have any legal status until the head of the family accepted the child into it. They could be destroyed at any time until the Pater familias, the, the father, the head of the family, received them into it. In other words, there was social engineering in the ancient world on a grand scale, and the Christian faith came to preach Christ and life and hope in the midst of all of that. Now, I hope you've noticed in what I've said there that our own world today has reverted to a pagan self understanding. Our country has. Now, of course, it went back further than that. It went back further than Greece and Rome because I read to you from Jeremiah, the Hebrews themselves were drawn into the false cults of the pagans all around them. If you read your Old Testament, you read about them, where they offered their children to Moloch or to Melech. It literally means king. It's just the Hebrew word. Melech is the Hebrew word for king. 
the God of the Ammonites. And where a culture exchanges the truth about God for the lie, as Paul says in Romans 1, that man can be as God, and he worships and serves the creation rather than the creator, he personifies nature and he worships himself through these various gods. When the Bible refers to Moloch worship, it was really state worship. And there was a big brass statue. It had a man's body and a bull's head. And its arms were outstretched. And in its belly was kindled a fire. And the parents had to willfully, by choice, and the choice, the free choice was all important, gladly offer their children to Moloch on the burning hands of the god Moloch. This is why we read in Deuteronomy 18, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead, end quote. There you have child sacrifice linked with false pagan religion, occultism. Now you can, that list is very interesting, because if you read that list through in Deuteronomy, you walk down where I am in High Park, Ronsonsvale, and you can see pretty much all of those things going on just down the street. You can go and have your, uh, participate in a seance, have your palm read, have somebody read your tea leaves. You can visit a spiritist. These things are becoming increasingly popular in our culture, and it's concurrent with abortion on demand. It's part of the cosmology of killing. It originates from this first temptation that our first parents had in the Garden of God You shall be as gods, knowing or determining for yourself good and evil, right from wrong, truth from falsehood, beyond good and evil. The justification of the killing of the unborn then, on the sole basis that it sanctions our choice or our right to choose, is the essence of Moloch worship. It's the same thing. We may not be placing our children in the fire, although I was in Cambridge a few weeks ago in England and had learned that some hospitals were burning aborted fetuses, even using some of them to heat the hospitals as part of the recycling process. But the meaning is the same. What we are doing is we propitiate, that is we satisfy self-will and the will of the state, which is just man-enlarged, by offering up our children on the altar of our good godhood, where we worship as a culture and serve, uh, serve the creature rather than the creator, our own self-will. You know, I watched a documentary while I was in Cambridge about abortion, a new documentary, and I, t- I was physically ill. I'd never seen anything like it. Tiny hands reaching up to grasp the fingers of their killers. 
Our society, you see, has adopted a cosmology of killing because we believe in our inalienable choice to be our own God. And we deny the reality that there is a value higher than our choice. There's no will higher than my will. All of which relates us actually to nothing but ourselves. If I'm not in relationship to God, I'm just in relationship to myself, which reduces me to nothing. And as with the worship of Moloch, it is this free, voluntary aspect that seems all important to our culture. So that politicians will even campaign on the premise. And as we play God, the sterile and clinical abortuaries with the state's strict limit upon public protest around these killing centers provides the deafening silence that shields mothers from comprehending the consequences of their actions. And that's the tragedy of our time. But there is a cosmology of compassion. And we're called to be part of it. The Christian, you see, has a cosmology of life, not death. We're pro-life because God is life and he's the author of life. You're not just here to give money to a good cause. We're here because God is the author of life. God's very being and nature is in fact defined by begetting. Have you ever thought about that? That our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is defined by begetting. The Son is the eternally begotten of the Father. So that begetting is part of the very character and nature of the God we worship. The Trinity is a self-giving, familial community of love. And as men and women are made in the image of God and come together in union, begetting takes place, generation occurs, and it brings life. To abort begetting is contrary then to the very nature of God who is love. You see, the cosmology of killing, there is no eternal begetting God. There's no Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Look, you're going to be singing about it in a few weeks. You're going to be singing all these Christmas carols. It's all about about the begetting of God. By contrast then to this cosmology of life, the cosmology of killing has an ultimate reality that there is no triune God. There's just an impersonal, empty, lifeless unity. And so death and annihilation are actually the goal of existence. Abortion then becomes logical in an anti-Christian worldview. But by opposing abortion, we're not moralizing. We're describing the nature of God and the world that he has made. We're not imposing our ideas on anybody. We're describing the nature of God. And the character of our salvation is likewise one of birth and generation. Think about it. Human birth is a type in the Bible of the new birth. We must be born again, Jesus said. 
We are regenerated through the work of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, by the imperishable seed of the Word of God. And by this we're given life and we're brought into the family of God. So not only God's own being and nature, but also creation and recreation or our salvation militate against and contradict abortion. In the cosmology of compassion, you see God is at work in all history by his providential and saving work to bring his will and purposes of life to bear. That's why Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and life in all its fullness. John's prologue tells us, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. So the creation of life is God's work, it's not man's, and as such it's solely in his hands, which means life is always on God's terms. It's God's terms, not ours. And they're set out in his word, his terms. I'm sure you're all familiar with the sixth commandment, which prohibits murder. And with that comes the positive duty to promote and protect life and protect the innocent. And in so doing, we are fulfilling God's law and his purposes for creation. And this was something that King David loved to meditate on. The word of God. The law of God. The cosmology of the Bible. The cosmology of life. And one of the things he considers is the mercy of God in his inscrutable care for the unborn child. Many of you will recognize it from Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. And in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. You The Bible describes the womb as God's studio. Set forth here, described as the depths of the earth, a place totally hidden, where from conception through gestation... David says, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And this work of God actually is known to men even when they seek to deny his knowledge. The psalm makes that clear. Romans 1 makes that clear. And one of the things I love most about this psalm as it talks about the unborn child is that the Hebrew word for mercy derives from the word womb. Womb. And that helps us understand David's praise, wonderful are your works. Verse 16 literally reads, My embryo your eyes saw. 
It's an incomplete vessel. The life is young. It's unfinished. That's what the scripture means here. And the rest of the verse relates the active creation of the human embryo in terms of God's predestination of the totality of life. In your book, David says, written every one of them, the days formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. The word formed literally means forming a plan. In other words, David isn't just saying God counts the days we've got. Rather, he's saying God is forming the future in these little ones. Before our hearts begin to beat, he's giving a meaning to every breath that you take. That's what it means. Every person fashioned in terms of God's holy purposes. And there are beautiful biblical examples of this. What does Jeremiah say? He says, God says to Jeremiah, he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. And St. Paul in Galatians says, He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. And let's not forget that that son, God the Son, was incarnate and born of a virgin's womb. And this manifested the mercy of God. Mary carried salvation in her womb. We're going to be celebrating it very soon. Not her choice. It wasn't her choice that reigned, was it? It wasn't Joseph's choice that reigned. But she did rejoice in God's choosing, and her soul magnified the Lord. So the womb is actually God's studio for sculpting the future in the cosmology of compassion. It's a place of mercy, and it brings gifts of mercy. We worship and serve the Creator And we honor God and his will, not ours, and we serve his purpose for all creation. And it's only when we see the womb as an expression of God's mercy that we begin to see the full evil of what we confront today in our culture in the promotion of abortion. Now, given given the biblical teaching, you would think that it would be obvious to every Christian that this is a critical issue. And yet the Christian sociologists tell us that it is far from obvious. It seems far from obvious. And tragically, it is not seen as central to the church's mandate to help families and save these little ones. They retreat from the cultural task of spreading life and salvation to all creation by applying God's word to every aspect of life. The true Christian, as the PCC are showing us, is to be someone who is not just a hearer of God's word, but a doer. We don't just hear, we do. Our attachment to Christianity is going to be defective if it doesn't generate in us an abhorrence of evil and a love for that which is good. Paul says, Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And St. James tells us, and I will show you my faith 
by what I do. Now, there are multitudes of pregnant young women across the city in the grip of a culture, and not just a culture, but a spiritual reality, a spiritual enemy that wants to rob them and rob God of life and his purposed future. All the health consequences are very important. There's very, very good studies now that support everything that Christians have been saying for a long time about the effects of abortion, including now masses, a mass increase in breast cancer. There's now, it looks as though, a very, very strong link between the two. We know those things are true. But what is really happening is that our culture wants to offer our children on the idol of self-will to the new Moloch, to the social planning of the state, to man enlarged, where our will, or the will of the state, is the will of God. I'm here to tell you it isn't. The cosmology of compassion demands that we offer life and hope to such women and that we show the love of the triune God that's manifest not only in his eternal begetting of his son and the incarnation of his son, but it's also revealed in the life that these women carry in their own wombs. It is an aspect of God's mercy to them. In the final analysis, there are only two religions. There are only two cosmologies. One is death. One is life. There's the worship and service of the creation, and there is the worship and service of the creator who is blessed forever. And what is set before us in our time is life and death, blessing and cursing. And like Joshua, we must choose life. This is the challenge before us today. As the scripture says, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers, your fathers served in the region beyond the river, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Who will you serve? And will you help? Pregnancy Care Center serve life and the purposes of God for our own generation. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.